Because I think those are the first two things that you mentioned when identifying me correctly as a super nerd. <laughs> I want to be a super nerd so bad after this episode. God. <laughs> you got your title right there. The super nerd. Super nerd. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Super operating nerd at Kleiner. Hi, I'm Jubin. Go to market partner at Kleiner Perkins. And this is GTMG a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ruben. I'm very excited to be here. I am excited to have you. We start all of these things off the exact same way. I've been getting feedback not to say that I'm going to screw things up, but I am going to screw things up. So... (laughs) When I do, please go ahead and correct me, okay? Fair. Okay. You went to Duke. You got your bachelor's in physics. Then you went to Accenture. You were a consultant for two years. Then Web Methods. You were the director of corporate research for almost six years. Microsoft for five years, the director of alliances. Then you went to Google, actually at GCP, Google Cloud. You were the sales director there for two years from 2010 to 2012. Then you were the founder of Enstrat Consulting for two years. Then you went to NetSuite, realized consulting is pretty much the worst. And then you did two years at NetSuite, vice president of sales for the enterprise organization from 14 to 16. Then you went to Adya and had a really good run there as the SVP of sales in North America. I did two years of that. And now you're at a firm as the SVP of sales. And it's been about two and a half years. That sounds about right. There's certainly some nuances in different roles at Web Methods, different things at Microsoft. But in general, that's what I have been up to for the past 23, 24 years. Well, look, if I went into all the nuances, it wouldn't sound as glamorous and cool. I wouldn't (laughs) sound as cool talking about it. So I guess first question, what was your first job? Ever. My first job ever was packing beer into the ice cooler at a local deli. I also dabbled in making sandwiches and I wanted to make the pizza, but they would not let me do that. So yeah, it was manual labor in a local deli in Rockville, Maryland. All right. Local deli. Okay couple questions for you. And I was also a sandwich guy. So we must share a lot of really great qualities in common. Both it, it is a place where everybody should start their great strong origins. That's right. It's a strong indicator of future success. <laughs> okay. So some interesting things that I just saw about your background that I'd love to pick apart with you. And then let's get into everything. Fire away. You used to write code. And I mean this in the nicest way possible. You're kind of nerdy guy. What happened? You're a physics major at Duke. Just tell me the story. I am unabashedly a nerd. I do not shy from that moniker. I came out of college and had an opportunity to go to a joint program between Duke and MIT and a master's in engineering management. And I kind of had a crisis of identity in, in 97 and said, I just, I got to get out of school. I got to go get a job. And so... It was after all the college recruiting, and I found a way to get in touch with Anderson Consulting. It was kind of pre-split and got offered a spot either in Raleigh, Charlotte, or Chicago and said, not only do I need to get out of Durham, I think you know it's time for me to leave the East Coast and the Southeast. So I went off to Chicago, taught myself to program, 
So my first job was actually getting staffed at the Chicago Tribune doing PeopleSoft implementation. So back in that day, you either went into their PeopleSoft practice or their SAP practice. And so I went PeopleSoft and I got an education at Wrigley, at the Tribune, understanding how businesses are run because we were doing a full finance and benefits implementation. And I was the only tech guy on the project, fresh out of college. I mean, I literally had no right to be there, to be honest, but it was just pure on the job training. And that's what Anderson is. I still, to this day, think that Accenture, Anderson, any of those consulting companies are a great place to start your career. This nerdiness kind of comes back full circle, I think, in your advantage at your day job in a firm. The other point that hit home for me, in 2010, were you selling actual Google Cloud? I know Google Cloud is classified as Google Apps and Gmail. Was this the straight up infrastructure as a service? Yes, so when I joined, I had come from Windows Azure. So I was on the Windows Azure launch team in 2008 and running partnerships. And so when I joined Google, I had a one year moratorium selling Gmail apps, doing channel sales, working with some of the great partners that we had there. And then they said, look, here's a pile of stuff. App engine, compute engine, BigQuery, cloud storage, see what you can make of it. And so with a ragtag bunch of folks, we went out to the market against Azure and Amazon Web Services before there was persistent storage. We only had the uh, Ethereal disks, and so... Amazon didn't even have S3 at that point, did they? No, they did. They were doing lift and shift, right? So their initial foray was take your SAP workload and move it into Web Services. And they had Netflix at the time, which was huge. And that was back when Adrian Colcroft and that team were writing the how to use Amazon Web Services. And so we looked around and we said, okay, well, and you're right. This is where the nerd background came in incredibly handy. And I've always looked <laughs> for jobs where I can be a nerd and sell. That was the epitome of this. It was, okay, well, they're really good at taking client server types of request response and scaling it exponentially. We're really good at taking a whole bunch of computers and making them appear as though it's one big computer. So if you remember when we actually launched Cloud Platform, Urs Hetzel came out on stage and while he was giving his presentation, in the background, GCP was sequencing the human genome. And that was really our entrance into the market. So it was highly analytical and computational workloads, things that were looking at log files, things that were mathematical in nature. And that was the initial foray for Cloud Platform. Now, obviously, with Diane and then now with Thomas Kurian, it's come miles from where we were when we first started. But we had App Engine on the front end of it, and we had to reprice App Engine which was an incredibly hard thing to do. We kind of cut off the tail and had to rebuild it. But I just remember getting in front of folks like Home Depot and Coca-Cola and talking about doing an analytics of weather data and how to do stock information based off of the weather. The other thing that I'm scratching at is I was pushing cloud security in 2014, public cloud security. And this was, at the time, Google was 
barely a thing. Azure was barely a thing. It was only AWS for all intents and purposes. It was Capital One, Netflix, and a couple other customers using this thing. And when I would make phone calls, I would still get the, we're never going to be on the public cloud ever response. That was in 2014. That was two years after you left Google. And at that point, two years later, GCP was barely on the radar. And so I guess I just want to know how humbling was that experience? Because everyone thinks of Google as this insane thing. And at that time, it was not fun selling Google Cloud Platform, was it? So redefine your frame of reference. We took a business from zero to 60 million in 18 months. To me, that was one of the best opportunities I've ever had in my career. I loved every minute of it. We hosted the website for the royal wedding. Answering the question, how do you throw a party for a billion people and not have the servers crash? That was the kind of stuff we were doing, and we were all geeking out over it. It was really fun. In Google terms, we didn't grow the business fast enough. And I totally get that. I understand that from the scale, we were quite small, but we built the foundation and the framework for what exists today. And so it's absolutely something that I look back on incredibly fondly and loved every minute of doing that. And maybe just to put a bow on it, I think competing with Amazon now is very difficult for Google. And I think it was even more difficult back then. I think the Delta in advantage that Amazon had in services and maturity was very significant at that point. And that's why, coming back to your original point, the thing that I've always prided myself on and helping my teams do is look for the differentiation and look for the way that we can enter a market that is going to showcase the strengths and that's why we really went after these computational workloads and were able to establish a foothold from which Google continued to build and build and build out the functionality. And I'm so incredibly proud of what the whole team did. Last story on this. I remember we were a cloud security company desperate to find cloud customers because they just didn't exist that much in 2014. And I remember my company sent me to LA for a Google Cloud warehouse conference thing that was for rendering because there was a really specific use case around when you're a movie company or production company. Had those conversations. Yeah, yes. you need a bunch of compute on the back end to render the movie. The render farm in the cloud was one of the first workloads because you're absolutely right. And that was a differentiator at the time. Like all the services have come together where they all essentially have the same capabilities. But back then, Amazon, again, was real good at single server, replicated a billion times. So Netflix was the perfect example of, I've got one server to handle this and I need to replicate that. But Render Farms was a completely different problem. It was, I need 10,000 cores for an hour, and then I want to let them all go back to the pool. I remember flying down to LA and having my business cards and a really ill-fitting suit on and trying to just figure out a way to get people's attention just to like book meetings, just to figure out what we could do 
to secure the Google Cloud workloads that people were doing rendering for movie production. That was a very humbling moment for me. When I look back on that, it's no surprise that things got easier from there. And I would imagine that was a similar feeling for you when you're up against Amazon selling Google Cloud in 2010. Now it must be quite satisfying to sell something like a firm into customers. So anyway, okay, moving along. Another question that I had, you've done every industry, consulting, cloud infrastructure, ERP, financial services. What do you look for when you evaluate new companies? Because it's obviously not the industry. No, I look for places where the tech background that I have will help me to be more successful and help me to hire a team of people who are similar minded and similar background. And really, to me, I'm, I'm also looking for what are the spaces is that, that are, a house phone? Sorry, is that? It, yeah, it's a house phone. Do people still have those? My in-laws have them. A house phone? I honestly heard that and I thought it was a movie or something because I haven't no, heard that. No, that's a legit <laughs> home phone line. Certain era has not moved on from the landline <laughs> quite yet. Sorry, continue. And yes, I am at my in-laws uh, <laughs> house right now. <laughs> Look, I'm looking for places that the market fit is at that inflection point. I've done a couple places pre-product market fit, and that's really, really hard. You're trying to sell to everyone in every industry to figure out what resonates. And so at this point in my career, I'm really looking for, we know we have a product market fit. Um, we need to figure out how to either differentiate or how to scale it or how to build it out. And to me, the industries tend to advantage those who understand technology. And that's really what I look for in the companies that I join. One of the things that I was thinking about before this recording is if I was your potential boss at a firm or Adyen or NetSuite and you came into my office and I was interviewing you, I would have no idea what questions to ask you. This is going to sound really strange. How do people interview you? I've never thought about that before. That's a great question. A lot of times now it's about leadership philosophy and people and understanding what it is in my background that I can bring that's unique to the seat. Wow, I've never, it's flattering, I guess. I told you, it's a weird question because you know what they're not asking you about, which is generally the lowest hanging fruit in interviews is domain expertise because you don't have them necessarily because you keep switching verticals. And Carlos Della Torre, one of my previous guests, is similar to you. He's the CRO of Trip Actions, formerly MongoDB, formerly Vera Security. And he's like, Jubin, I don't give a shit about industry there is a few criteria that I look for. And I remember thinking back to that interview and I wish I asked him the question that I just asked you, which is, okay, I know how you evaluate it, but how do people evaluate you? A lot of questions are, do you understand the industry? And so in my particular case, I absolutely have to make sure I've done my homework because if I walk into a conversation with a firm and I don't know what BNPL stands for, then I'm not gonna get the job. So they also want to know 
how I think about strategy, and there goes the landline again. Perfect. So how I think about strategy as it relates to the industry that I'd be walking into, then it shifts very quickly to, hey, we have a team of this type of people. What are you going to bring to that? Can I ask you a follow-on funky question then? Funk away. All right. This is going to be so hard for you to answer. Do you think you ramp slower than other leaders? And let me unpack that one step further. Ryan Barreto, one of my previous guests, now the president of Sprout Social and formerly SVP, big title sales at Salesforce. We talked about a similar thing where he said, you know, Jubin, I was a little insecure when I got in there because I tried to take my playbook from Salesforce into Sprout. And I very quickly realized that for the first three to six months, that playbook was somewhat applicable and it helped me ramp a little bit more quickly. And I had some domain expertise that helped me get moving a little bit faster. Beyond that, the playbook was out the window. And I think of it similar to like when I'm interviewing reps, the relationship rep, I could care less because where it'll help you is your first three to six months. You'll reach out to your existing customers, whatever. But over time, the cream always rises to the top. However, it does impact the ramp period. Weird question. Do you think you ramp slower? No and yes. I'll give you what I think is an honest answer to the question. I take my time to understand the technology. So when I went from ERP to payments, my immediate value was not in, I understand what interchange and interchange plus plus and scheme fees and the different alternative payment methods. That took time. It absolutely took time. But the ability to absorb things quickly and to learn quickly and the, that tech background, that is what helps me when I'm picking companies, particularly that are fintech, not go to a bank. That helps me to ramp quicker on that side. But where I am able to make, I think, a pretty immediate impact is in how the teams are structured and organized and how you put people in positions to be successful very quickly and getting into a negotiation and listening. And I'm somebody who if I am in an ivory tower issuing directions, then just shoot me. I'm done. It's time for me to hang them up. I've got to be out in front of the merchants. I've got to be listening and supporting my team. One of the first things I've done at NetSuite, Adyen, and Affirm is create a shared spreadsheet, a Google spreadsheet with my team and say, okay, start listing out all the issues. What slows you down? What keeps you from getting things done? And then let's go back through and let's stack rank them. And then let's identify where the bottleneck is. And I spend the first three to six months while I'm coming up to speed on the product, just working on managing internal issues and navigating, blocking and tackling. I mean, one of my AEs right now will send me a Moose Johnston t-shirt because to him, my job is blocking and tackling and, and moving <laughs> things around and clearing the space for them to come through. And when you establish that early on, while you're coming up to speed, that's where I say the ramp is not that fast in terms of how you enable people who know what they're doing 
when you get there to be successful. Yeah. At the same time as coming up to speed, and the tech background allows me to do that much quicker because I'm choosing places where that is an advantage. Does that answer your question? It does. It, it resonates. I remember when I first moved to Chicago to build out our enterprise team, I was, I don't know, 26 or something. And there was two people on the team, one of whom was significantly older than me and a superstar. And there was a lot of doubt, if you will, of what's this guy's deal? Is this kid going to come? And my approach was very similar to yours, which is like, look, my job is to clear everything in front of you in order for you to achieve your objectives. I also believe that in order for me to clear things in front of you, we need to have a mutual agreement of what your objectives are. And so that's how I started the conversation. And I said, like this spreadsheet that you're talking about, I kind of made one with him of a running list of things that we need to do. But what was really important to me was mutually defining what success looked like and the ways to achieve that. And success could have been hitting your number or driving deals, but there was a lot more things that we wanted to do to go build that team out that I needed from him. And so I wanted to define really early on that success was beyond the scope of just hitting your number. And so when we talk about clearing things, just know that I'm not only going to go to bat for you when we need to go get a deal done, but I need you to go to bat for me when we're doing interviews, when we're doing all the things that are outside the scope of your comp plan. Does that resonate with you when you had that conversation? Yeah, completely. Some of the easiest things to do is to help reps understand that they can say no to, that not everything is a good deal, and that there are times when you're empowered to just say, hey, no, this is not a good deal. I'm going to spend my time elsewhere. And when you take that burden off their backs, that they're empowered to find the right deals and to find the right opportunities to work on, and that you have their back, they are a hundred times more interested and willing to have yours as well. I say this whenever anybody asks me at a firm, what is it that you're trying to do? I've been in great sales environments and I've been in really toxic sales environments. And what I'm trying to build at a firm is a place that you remember working. And when you have the seat that I'm in, which I feel like anybody that we bring into the Affirm Sales organization is a potential SVP of sales, CRO, CEO, the career path is unlimited. But I want you to remember the time that you worked at Affirm and that we are an organization who is collaborative by nature. We celebrate each other's wins. We work together. I have had a few people in their interviews say, hey, I'm a lone wolf. Just give me a deal and get out of my way and I'll get it done. And that's great, but that's not who I'm looking to hire. Because when we're sharing learnings, when we're all working together, when you have folks who are like, hey, can you take a look at this email and tell me what you think? Or saying, hey, here's what I saw at these three or four deals I just did. Do you see the same thing? And then we're sharing that learning across the entire organization that we're viewed across the organization as somebody that is very partner forward, that we're not going to the risk organization and saying, you have to do this deal. Rather, we're working together and saying, hey, how can we do this deal? Is it possible? What risk does this present? 
understanding other people's perspectives, you're going to be wildly successful. And you're going to do it in a way that you're enjoying the company of the people that you work with. And my goal is that the folks who are in this organization go on to have spectacularly successful careers. And a little bit of what they learned here and what they found here, they're taking with them and saying, hey, I want to build what we had when we were at a firm because I really like that. Good transition. This company, Affirm, if you haven't heard of it, Founders Fund, Spark Capital, Kosla, Lightspeed, its most recent-ish market cap is around $18 billion. Q3 revenue was $230 million. In June of 2019, revenue grew 93% to $509 million of ARR. It is a behemoth, putting it lightly. Max Levchin was the founder. Max Levchin was also the former co-founder of PayPal. Can you spend 30 seconds telling the audience, what does Affirm actually do? So we are a point of sale financing and buy now, pay later provider. So the ability for you to make a purchase at the point of sale and to then split that payment, whether that payment is over a six week period or a 12 month period, or in the case of Peloton, a 39 month period, the ability to split out that payment and to do it either at 0% interest or at a fixed APR rate. We never charge a late fee. We never have, never will charge a late fee. We do not believe in deferred interest or in hidden fees. What you see is what you get in terms of the installment payments. For the merchants, we're a marketing accelerator. So we are taking that philosophy of purchase and moving it upstream and saying, this bike is as low as $100 a month. And when you frame things that way, you see increased conversion, you see increased AOVs, you see a share shift to a younger demographic. From a consumer's perspective, this industry has traditionally had not a good reputation. And the reason is because the way that providers, financial service providers like a firm used to make their money is through things like late fees. They would generally use the stick, not the carrot in order to generate revenues. And actually, I think Max got hung up a little bit when he was pitching people in the early days because they were like, well, how are you going to make money? And I think the reason why this market cap in this company is so successful is because of some of those values that the company has organized around. And you can see that manifest in things like your net promoter score. It's 78. Apple's is 72. So I go to the Apple store and I will drop my AirPods into the wash and I will go to the Apple store and they will return them for free. So let's just say like NPS is pretty darn good at this company. Random question. I talk a lot on the enterprise side about net retention. So I talk about, all right, net retention is 130%. If you spend $100 the next year, they're going to spend an extra $30. Is NPS the consumer version of net retention in some weird way? And this is simple Jubin making this really dumb for myself. (laughs) It is a very good proxy. The more that your consumers are delighted by the experience, the more that they will come back and continue to use the product and use it in an escalating fashion. A couple of things. We are really good at underwriting. And so we never want to put a consumer into debt that they cannot repay. Part of which because we take the liability on the loan. So we put ourselves out of business. 
The second piece is one of the most common calls to our call center is, hey, I'm late on my payment. How much do I owe you in fees? The consumer mentality is literally baked into, if I miss a payment, I have to pay payment plus. And so this concept of actually just owe us the payment, can you make that? It changes the way people tend to pay a firm back earlier than some of the other debt they have because they don't want to lose access. That is our stick. The stick is, hey, I'm sorry, we can't underwrite you again. Not, I'm going to charge you fees because quite frankly, there are two different types of people who don't pay. The people who are never going to pay, in which case charging them a million dollars in fees isn't going to, you're not going to recoup those fees anyway. And then there are the folks who had something happen to them. They had a medical issue. They had an unexpected expense. They lost their job. And charging them a fee is the wrong way to incent them to pay you back, right? It's actually the exact opposite of what they need. They need a break. And that's really what the company was founded on. Can I ask you a favor? Yeah. Can you please sell to the DMV so that (laughs) I can actually pay for the amount that my parking ticket has ever been or my speeding ticket? Because I swear to you, I've never paid the original (laughs) amount. It's always been in the thousands somehow on like a $100 parking ticket. Can I use this platform now to just ask you to please go sell to the DMV? You absolutely can. I will tell you that you can go to Affirm anywhere, right? So you go to the Affirm marketplace, you download a store value card, yeah. You enter that card in as the credit card payment at the DMV, and you will be able to split that payment. Oh, beautiful. So you could do it today without me selling to them, but I will get on that. I just walked you into quite the nice firm commercial. <laughs> so you mentioned liability on a loan. So I think the reason, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not going to try and rewrite your company's history books here, but the reason that you can take liability where others can't is because you're a software company with a bunch of nerds that Max Levchin recruited. And what does that mean? And again, I'm using nerds in the most nice, sincere way possible because- I don't think Max would be offended with being- No, I don't think so either. He's built a 28, I wish I was a nerd. If I could build an $18 billion company, you call me whatever the hell you want. The reason that you can take that liability is because you don't rely on the traditional infrastructure scoring mechanisms that we have put in place today, like the FICO credit score, in order to underwrite this financing. So a firm can calculate the risk of borrowers based on a range of a bunch of different personal data from information that they glean from a bunch of different sources. And so what you've basically done is created an algorithm that's smarter than everybody else's so that you have more data that's more thoughtful to then give you the ability to underwrite where others cannot in a more intelligent way. And you know who used to do this? This was kind of the like Warren Buffett playbook of the old days where with Geico, they had genius risk scoring and underpinning of liability scores that gave them the ability to do things and do business where others could not. Is that correct or fair? I mean, look, you're hired. (laughs) I would love to have you on my team here, Jubin. No, that's exactly it. We have some of the best tech minds. We're a tech company that happens to operate in financial services. And it allows us to view risk through a completely different lens. And it's why during the pandemic, we came through, like talk about trial by fire for a company whose business is money and lending money. And we came through with flying colors. And the other 
leading indicator of how strong the underpinnings and financials of the company are, are the three securitization rounds we've done with our capital markets team as well. Like the industry is just voting with their feet and saying the way these guys look at underwriting and handle risk gives us incredible confidence that they know what they're doing. They're not putting the consumer in debt and they're not putting their company at risk. What's it like working for Max Levchin? I love Max. I admire that guy so much. Come on, is it hard? Working for somebody who has the intelligence that Max has, it always keeps you on your toes. But I would also say the biggest thing with working with Max is to establish your domain expertise. And Max recognizes and respects folks who have a different domain expertise than he does. And so I wouldn't say it's hard. I would say it is thrilling because he will challenge you in ways that my puny little brain doesn't think about. And I've got to be able to respond on my feet. But it is really an opportunity of a lifetime to get to work alongside and work with Max. Remember when I was saying earlier how it would all come full circle, how being a nerd would behoove you later yes. on. This yes. seems like one of those areas this is where one of those areas where it sure helped you, didn't it? It did. I remember in my interview with him, I had I think I had 15 interviews in order to get the job. And the last one was with Max. And the thing that stuck out for him was so you're a physics major who worked on Google Cloud Platform. So those two items in my particular background gave me credibility. So it does come full circle because I think those are the first two things that you mentioned when identifying me correctly as a super nerd. (laughs) I want to be a super nerd so bad after this episode. God, (laughs) you got your title right there. The super nerd. Super nerd. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Super operating nerd at Kleiner. This is not meant to be a curveball, but just a generally interested question. So you mentioned AOV earlier. For the audience, that means average order value. And one of the benefits that a firm and other buy now, pay later organizations will tout is that on the merchant side, you're going to get, to your point, a younger demographic that's going to spend more on these purchases. For a merchant, that's crystal clear understood. So as an example, a firm would partner with a StubHub. And what that would mean is that I could go on StubHub and buy Super Bowl tickets. And those Super Bowl tickets could be $5,000, and I'm just making numbers up, that are amortized over 36 months. And so all of a sudden, my monthly payments for those is not that much. It's whatever, a little over 100 bucks, I think. I'm not going to do the math. And so that feels palatable. I could do that. But then you look back on it and you're like, wait a second. Should I really have spent $5,000 on Super Bowl tickets? Was that really the best thing for me as a consumer? Like, is it making it a little bit too easy to make big ticket purchases when people might not be financially literate enough to know? Does that make sense? It does. And look, as I said at the beginning, in our underwriting models, we are really trying to identify who should and can pay us back and who we should and can underwrite. It's not our job to make decisions on an individual basis. It is our job to be transparent. And part of where people get in trouble is where if you take that same Super Bowl ticket example, I buy those Super Bowl tickets and I buy them with a credit card. 
and my payment comes due in 30 days. And this is a revolver. And so that $5,000 comes on top of other things that happen. And so if I have to miss that payment, that deferred interest is going to go all the way back to the beginning of the loan. And that $5,000 Super Bowl ticket that I knew exactly how much I was going to pay every month, and I could budget for it for the next 36 months and say, okay, I'm budgeting this much money in order to pay for that, to have this experience that I really want to have. In the credit card example, I could get into a lot of trouble. In the Affirm example, I have the ability, and if you look at what those payments are, it's, again, I'm not going to do the math either, but call it $150 a month consistently every month versus it was $5,000 30 days from now. It's now $5,500 or $6,000 36 months from now because that interest keeps compounding. So it's not our job to tell people what experience they should have and what experience they shouldn't have. It's our job to make sure that if they decide to do that experience, that they know exactly how much they're going to pay every month and they can budget for it up front as opposed to getting hit with something that they really hadn't planned for. And then it's, should I have done this? And oh, crap, I'm now in debt to the credit card company because I can't pay for this anymore. And if you take this and you actually flip it on its head and you say, okay, well, what if that thing that happened was my car broke down? And that's an unexpected expense. And so we're not just partnering with the StubHubs. We're also partnering with the dealerships to say, hey, let's let people pay for their repairs over time because that's an unplanned expense. And so it's both about the things you want and the things you need being available to budget and plan for and to make the unexpected more affordable in your life as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I actually think it is a positive force. And I do believe that this is a really good step in the right direction in the ways that you don't punish customers for things like being late. I do get a little bit of flashbacks when I see the competition that comes in, okay? And what ends up happening when competition comes in is that all of a sudden, algorithms, historically speaking, get looser. So you could look at, let's just call it the housing loan market. What ended up happening was that all of these financial firms were trying to sell jumbo loans. Those jumbo loans ended up being a more competitive market. So what did they do? They loosened the underwriting for the ways and the access that they could have to customers. And then that led to quite a horrible situation in our economy and in the housing market. And so I'm not saying that's happening here. However, a firm continues to have more power. And I think with that power comes a really big set of responsibilities to the consumer. And let me just say, I'm glad that I think good people are running this place and you can tell the signals of that are through things like not punishing the customer, but it's certainly scary. Is that fair? It is fair. And I would make a couple of comments there. No late fees, right? Their credit card is no late fees, no hidden fees. That type of competition we welcome because that is the industry that Max created, which is don't punish the customer. The whole point of flipping the industry on its head is put the consumer at the center of everything and things will work out. 
There are other competitors who are doing things like a dollar convenience fee for every payment. That's called interest. There are folks who are doing late fees still or deferred interest still. When we were competing for the business at Shopify, one of the major principles that we aligned on early on was the consumer has to be the center of this entire universe. I believe strongly in our technology, in our technologists, in our salespeople, in our partnerships, and in our capital markets. But this is a multi-billion, potentially trillion-dollar industry. There is a reason that there's a Visa, a MasterCard, an Amex, a Discover, right? It is not necessarily a winner-takes-all market. We just want to make sure that the players in the game all are doing this with the consumer at the center of it. It's a little Robin Hood-esque where you're going to change the way that others have to play the game. When Robin Hood says, hey, there's $0 trading fees, guess what? Everybody else kind of followed suit. And I think that's healthy competition. I do believe that's good. And I think that it takes someone like a Robin Hood, like an Affirm, to do that in order to raise the level of the way that we service consumers. And I think that's why this country is great, honestly. And that's reflected in both of your market caps today, isn't it? And so it's a really beautiful thing the way that works. Okay, a couple more things that I want to ask you. I've heard Max talk a lot on different things. And he says we should be able to out-product and out-engineer the competition. Affirm is an engineering company. And he was talking about 30% conversion and volume increase. And he labeled that as an engineering problem. And in my mind, 30% increase in conversion and volume, that's revenue. And so going back to the max thing a little bit, okay, sure, you're an engineer at heart, but you happen to run the revenue organization. And often the archetype that we invest in at Kleiner that I end up talking to a lot in these kinds of conversations, the CEO is the technical person. And often there is a, not a tension, but there is, has to be a meeting of the minds of the value of sales in an organization that is so product and engineering centric. How do you think about that? Like, how do you approach those conversations? Do you feel insecure about it at times? Is this thing selling itself, right? Like when you sell the Peloton and 28% of your revenue is on there, then you get your distribution flywheeled and solved for free because at the point of sale, it says affirm. That is your distribution. And if I'm putting you on the hot seat, sorry, no, I don't mean to be. Well, that's, that's your job, right? I mean, that, <laughs> it reminds me of that Saturday Night Live with Martin Short where he's chain smoking the cigarettes saying, do I feel nervous? Do I look nervous? <laughs> I'm not nervous. But no, all kidding aside, as I said before, Max is an engineer at heart. The co-founders are engineers at heart. And that's part of the reason why I joined the company because I have made a career of selling for fantastic technology. Adyen is a fantastic technology. Fantastic. Google is an engineering-first company. I think of all the CEOs, Larry and Sergey were the most, what is a salesperson mentality? What I will say about Max and why the partnership, in my opinion, is so strong is that Max understands that the technology can take you very far but it's not the entire story. There's two really important parts of what we do on the commercial side of the business. Three, really, when you add in the partnerships piece, but I'll leave that off the side for a second. 
When we sell, we are selling the value of the engineering organization. We're selling the value of that conversion lift and AOV lift. We're selling the value of the network that we have from the consumer business. But we don't stop there. We don't stop when the contract is signed. We don't say, hey, great, thank you. We're going to go on to the next one. We have a, an incredible client success organization, and the whole purpose and point of that organization is to optimize the implementation of a firm so that you're seeing the maximal share of cart, the maximal conversion rates, the maximal AOV lifts, so that you're able to look and say, okay, I want to buy down 0% to give the merchant is actually paying for the consumer's interest. And it's all of that together that makes a firm so special. The technology has to exist that can enable 100% AOV lifts, 30% conversion. But we also have to sell that value proposition in a crowded market. And we have to be able to delight the merchant and show that value on an ongoing basis. And it's really that flywheel. That's what Peloton doesn't get to be as big as it is without the client success organization helping to drive and optimize that business with them. And look, there are also incredibly smart folks on the Peloton side who have made a science out of this. Absolutely. I think it's an honest and fair answer. Last question, and then we can wrap this. I know I got to let you go. So PayPal and Max have a reputation for a written culture. The way that PayPal used to work and the way that Peter and Max ran the organization was not necessarily the way that salespeople generally are most comfortable communicating. As an example, I came into Kleiner and it's a very written culture. Emails are written. Your thoughts need to be articulated very succinctly written in email form. And I wasn't used to that. In fact, it's probably a weakness of mine. It still probably is which is why I pick up the phone and call people, which is probably why I run a podcast and don't write a book. <laughs> was that an adjustment for you or is that an adjustment for those that you hire? Am I making shit up? Does that even exist as a thing around the way that information flows through the organization? Yeah, I haven't found that to be too much of the case here. There is a culture of candor and openness. There is a culture of real debate, real discussion. And then there's a culture of commit and perform. And quite honestly, that's what we screen for in our sales folks too. In this sales organization, good ideas come from everywhere. Whether this is your first job out of college and you're a BDA and you're getting responses to the emails you're sending out, I want to know about it. Our team wants to know what's that tip of the tip of the spear look like. And so when you create an open culture and when you create a culture where you can have debate and where you do let voices through and get heard and it's not this top-down, rigid environment, that's what we're looking for in the sales folks that we're hiring is folks who want to come in and make a difference and want to come in and be a part of this culture. Culture is really, really important at a firm. I haven't found it to be the antithesis or anything that's counter to the way that I operate. Maybe I'm just writing a movie script and projecting my own shit onto you. So good. Perfect place to wrap it. Jubin looking like an absolute idiot. It is a good transition, though, into salespeople, a firm hiring, culture, all of this goodness that's coming with this company. I suspect there's going to be a lot more ahead of you. 
so I assume you're hiring across the board. So um, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you? And is there any one or two key positions that you're looking to fill? If someone hears this episode, they get fired up on it. They can reach out to you. We're growing and we need people. Yeah. Eric.morse at affirm.com. So that's E-R-I-C dot M-O-R-S-E at affirm.com. And look, we're hiring for folks fresh out of college all the way to we're looking for frontline managers and we're looking for quota carrying folks in fashion and travel and home and lifestyle and passionate, intelligent, high EQ, want to be part of a collaborative culture. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? What success is defined by is how you respond to your failures, because there will be failure in life. Failure is a part and sometimes the most important part of learning. And grit means picking yourself up, not being afraid to fail, and picking yourself up when you do. Eric, you're the man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.